Welcome to Afterlives with Kara Cooney, in which we discuss ancient Egyptian history and relevant current events that we think will be of interest to our audience. I am Kara Cooney, and I'm a professor of Egyptology at UCLA. This podcast is separate from my teaching and research roles at UCLA. In recent years, I've become active in communicating with the general public about the history of ancient Egypt through lectures, interviews, social media, books, and guest appearances. This podcast is my opportunity to take the kinds of deep dives into history that are not always possible in academic formats. Hello. Hi. Hi, hi. Hello, everyone. How are you doing? I'm okay. It's, it's the book that never freaking ends. It just keeps the never going. never-ending story. Yeah, and, <laughs> and the quarter hasn't even started yet, and there's mm. been just a lot of drama and fires to put out. Yeah. So that's been exhausting. Like yesterday, I worked until 10 p.m., sent my last email with a document attached, like 10.15, and I didn't get any of my own work done yeah. the whole day. So. I feel like I've been having the opposite. I actually, actually did my own work last that's week, awesome. which was like very nice. And yeah. Yeah, making this, I don't know how helpful it will be, but it was cool for me. Um, map of all the different Theban necropoli with the tombs and like geo-referenced. Yeah. So I have them all. Because this is your data. Yes. For the clothing, for the mm -hmm. fashion. And pulling all the images and stuff, but just having, because, you know, certain where they're positioned, you know, goes into the value and all this stuff as well. So. Are you going to use other, are you going to use statues or if they're associated with tombs or? I am I'm tracking all that right now too. If there's any. You can't do everything. But I can't do anything. No. I'm mainly, so I have like a, I'm using Airtable. I'm going through all of the stuff, pulling images, but then I'm tagging which ones would be good for what. Like, oh, when I'm talking about gender, like definitely mm. mention this one. Or this one shows like good style change mm. tag. So I'm like just pulling everything together now to like good examples for chapters or sections I know I want. Um, Which one's the best style change besides like some something like Ramosa? <laughs> Which is probably the best and most well, obvious I was gonna say, style so change. So like good like A3 to A4. There's yeah. a couple tunes. And for that, those of you that don't I'm know, sorry, that's yeah. Egyptological jargon for Amenhotep the Third to Amenhotep the Fourth slash Akhenaten. Yeah. But anyway, we we do this. We do T4 A3. Yeah, it's, it's just short. Yes, yeah, it's the way we do. It. Um, well, because A could also be, I guess, Elman Emhot, but I'm mm. never talking about the Middle Kingdom. No, exactly. So. I'm with you. <laughs> We're I, all I talking about fine. the New Kingdom. Yeah. Um, so. Those ones that span, and you know, some that come at the end of Amenhotep III's reign, yeah. have a like a softer style yeah. than like the extreme Amenhotep beautiful gorgeousness that are more early. They you can and you can kind of start almost to see like this Ramazid Seti one vibe starting to appear in very late A3 tombs. Wow, they start getting a little lankier yeah. in that Ramazid book. And then it obviously Akhenaten comes in and it disappears. And so then, you're doing fashion of body shape. Too. Well, I'm looking at some art historical things. Which is super interesting because there are times when women are more voluptuous mm -hmm. or expected to be more well, voluptuous yeah. or that's what they want. Like, arguably today, right, with mm -hmm. a Kardashian big-butted look. But I think it's actually, I would say for right now, it's going back to skinny skinny. Because the Kardashi I, Kardashians are going super skinny. And are like, they really? Yeah, Kim got some of her butt taken out. Really? Mm -hmm, they're smaller. Kim's like, uh, and Chloe are like waffishly thin now. Huh. They're like super skinny, which I'm like, that's bad because like you're going to promote all these like eating disorders in people. Not that we don't already have yeah. them, but yeah. But they're getting like really skinny. Hmm. So, so that goes with inflation, I that, suppose. That and I think like all the 90s it. fashions are back. So <laughs> 90s was really skinny. But um, but yeah, bodies being part of a style or a fashion, right? Yeah. 
what your hair looks like, yeah. what body types are. 90s were skinny, but then there were the Cindy Crawfords and Elle McPhersons who had actual bodies. Yeah, well, I think there's always competing lines. There's like the 90s Coke model look, or there's the more yeah. American pie. Yeah. So there's always competing I, yeah. in modern times, I would say. Yeah, but body shape is really interesting. I've, mm -hmm. I'm curious to see what you're going to what you're going to find. And of course, these things are always so harmful. And I just read that Linda Evangelista oh screwed gosh. up her face yeah, with she cool, did the cool sculpting? sculpting on her chin, and it like caused all these like like, like polyp, not polyps, but like hardened hard, fat yeah, pockets. Yeah, like made it like lumpier. Oh my it, like, god! It like the opposite. I oh know. my god! That's like I never. Nope. I haven't done that. To all these things. No, I haven't done Botox. I'm not doing any of that stuff. I would do Botox before that. I'm not doing Botox. It's like, how do you get the botulism to cross the blood-brain barrier? You inject it into your head. <laughs> I, I don't want to do that. And people who get a lot of it, it's, oh, you well, start to droop yes. in time. Well, and then like it doesn't have the same effect. It's funny, you know, we talk about- better not to get started with any of those. I know. <laughs> we talk about Elizabethan mm -hmm. uh, women putting lead on their faces and, oh, yeah. and their teeth are all black because they were trying to, partly because of the lead, I think, and then other things. But like, you know, we don't have much evidence for the Egyptians doing health interventions or beauty interventions that actually harm their health, do we? I mean, you could argue that like Kalina, you're putting on your eyes is lead. Yeah, so that wouldn't be you good could if argue you were that. doing long-term exposure. Like, orpiment, I don't think, I mean, argue, orpiment like, is arsenic. Yeah, arsenic. Yeah. So anything like they're doing like rouges or like eyeshadow or like, I don't know what like. I don't know. I don't, I know of it on coffins, but I don't know of it ever used as yeah. a beauty, a makeup And I think tool, we have that one. Possible. It's sparkly. Like salve or whatever ointment that they've, they tested and it was like full of white lead. Was it? Yeah, that they would put on as like foundation type of the stuff. One, was that in Museo Egizio in Turin or where was that found? I'd have to look it up. I just rem I remember what it looked like. Uh oh, show they, notes. There'll be a show notes look. Thanks Sam. For, um, for some reason I'm thinking, <laughs> I, I was I, I think it might be Ptolemaic because I remember them being like Cleopatra, like yeah, like Cleopatra's makeup or something. Some but, um, bullshit clickbaity yeah. yeah. sort of title. And that was its like pool. Um, hmm. But yeah, otherwise, I mean, or like, Henna they were using for their hair and nails, but can, can I don't henna think real be harmful? Henna is the henna now can sometimes well, be super like harmful. Henna. Yeah, it's like full of lead. I think. Yeah, I think so. But I think real henna from the plant is is fine. Is fine. Um, mm -hmm. So yeah, I would mainly come from metals, like any metals they're using for like Galena eye paint and stuff like that. I would think. Anyway. It's, but, it's certainly an interesting topic you've got there, Jordan. Yes. So yeah, um, no, have fun with it. I was, it was fun to finally get into it, and mm -hmm. it's just the main work on like all the tombs of the mm -hmm. Theban necropoli um, is comp, and it's, it's like comp. It's like this giant two-toned behemoth yeah. in yeah. German. Yeah. And I had like there's like maps, and I was like, <laughs> yeah, like trying to find a tomb and. So you're going to be doing Theban fashion, which means you're yeah. going, it's not going to be provincial, but it's not going to be, certainly of the Ramesid period, of the capital or of the cosmopolitan mm -hmm. setting. It's going to be something much more conservative and provincial, arguably. So you'll yeah. have to work with that. Yeah, and seeing, you know, occupation, how that charts, where, you know, if you're a certain occupation, do you look a certain way in the tomb? Are you more conservative? Super um, interesting. Age, right? They usually depict the parents in, like, the fashions from the previous generation, yeah. which is cool. Yeah. Um, all that good stuff. I found someone, I forget who it was, but he had a title like overseer of the wig manufacturers of the Temple of Amun. 
So there's like a wig workshop in the temple in Karnak somewhere. They're just making all these wigs and... What's the word for wig? I'd have to look it up. I don't know off the top of my head. Uh-oh. I was reading it in, trans- in translation. I, I, I time out and I'll look. Wig. Neba. Neba. With hair determined. That makes yeah. sense. But yeah, I was like, interesting. Someone's in charge of wigs. Mm-hmm. Which that makes you think, like, where are they getting this hair? Mm-hmm. How are they, you know, procuring all these things? Is it like in India where you go and like donate your hair to the temple and then as an offering and then they make a wig? Or do you get cash money for that yeah. exchange? We know nothing. Mm-mm. We know nothing. The wigs in the Met, they're human hair? Yeah. Yeah. There are some that, like, I think they would use, like, lower quality ones where they use, like, vegetable fibers. Mm-hmm. But, yeah, all the, like, the ones in the Egyptian Museum and the Met, they're all, in Ka Merritt's wig, they're right. all human hair. Right. So. Like a polyester wig versus a human hair yeah, wig, and the cost difference is extraordinary. Someone's yeah. giving their hair. Yeah. So... That's interesting. And I know, like, the wig industry today, it's, like, kind of an exploitive... I bought that book you told me to buy. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it's super interesting. And did you know that you can can buy barber cuttings for all kinds of reasons? And did you know until recently they made some supplements out of hair cuttings from the floor of barber shops and hair salons? Yes. I can't remember which one it was. Lysine. I don't know. Some, Some supplement. Um, I guess. Ooh, gross! And I You're think they've collagen said collagen and keratin. Yeah, I don't know, but there there is actually a market for that, for for this kind of hair that you can somehow weave together, like the in, little, into something longer. I, I guess, d- I guess yeah. you can apply it or like yeah. know, some type of glue or something. Yeah. yeah. I, I don't know exactly how it works, but it's like hair picking and yeah. then hair. Oh yeah. We mm-hmm. and then hair spinning and mm-hmm. oh my goodness. Well, and like to make the wigs, they like it's like very sewing and weaving coordinated yeah. you have to like weave it onto like a cat face and, yeah yeah so yeah. yeah it's a huge industry yeah but today <laughs> away from our tangent uh, but today we're doing our september uh patreon questions patreon oh i love questions. it so yeah. but first we have some shout outs because we have some new members and we have some birthdays coming up um this month in september and so first a shout happy birthday shout out to marissa Happy birthday, Marissa. Um, and also Lexi's birthday. Oh, happy birthday, Lexi. So happy These are two people we know, so yeah. that's great. Happy birthday, Marissa and Lexi. So, um, happy birthday to you both. Good. Are they Virgos, I guess? Yeah. Two, oh, yeah. Two Virgos. Yeah, happy detailed um, investigative work. Yep. <laughs> All good. And also, you know, we have new Patreon, so hello to our new... I'm like, I always go between, like, Patreons... And like patrons of Patreon. I think they're patrons in Patreon. Yeah. But, you know, welcome patrons. It's patrons. Thank you for your support. Yeah. Uh, it wouldn't be possible for for Jordan to take time off of her her jobs to be able to do this podcast without your support. So yeah. thank you. Yeah, we appreciate you. She's a grad student, you know. Yeah. She can't she can't just pull away and have no time uh, or have ample time without funding for yep. for all of this. And it takes time to mm-hmm. put this together. Figure out the sound equipment, set it all up, figure out what we're doing each time. And um, so it's it's important that yeah. we that we support that work. Good. Um, our first question is from Drew Barney, the vampire, <laughs> which he commented on our Discord that he's like, I love that Kara giggles every time you say <laughs> my, my username. And I was like, I just got to happen again, like right now. Yeah, it did, it did. 
It'll um, never stop. It's just a fun, it's a great username. Yeah. Uh, and they ask, do you, we have any evidence of Egyptian games? And if so, what were they? Yeah, we, we do have evidence of Egyptian games. Um, well, what's obviously the most obvious Senet. one is Senet, which means an Egyptian like passing mm -hmm. to pass. Yeah. And it's, um, it's, it's a really interesting game because you see people playing it. It's, it's on an oblong board. Mm -hmm. And there's generally drawers in the oblong board mm -hmm. that can hold the pieces. They hold the pieces and the like die. Yeah, and the, but they're not die; they're sticks. So yeah, yeah, the the throwing sticks mm -hmm. to figure out how many moves you get. Yeah, there's we don't, a white and a black side, and like yeah, like yeah. chess. We don't know exactly how it was pl played, but you stick your you stick your playing piece into a hole, kind of like wasn't the game of life in the like the, in the little 70s people like this you put the little people in, in little the holes car. and stuff yeah, and there's the a little, yeah. yeah so think of it like that but you you know you put your sticks in the little in the little holes and they have kind of a wasp shape to them sometimes mm -hmm. the mm -hmm. the senate um game pieces so we don't know how the game was played but what's interesting and kind of for your work you know mm -hmm. this idea of fashion you see people in private tombs tomb chapels playing the game usually a husband and wife yeah. together and they're playing it under some sort of a canopy and in their Luxury, fanciest dress. Leisure. Yes, they're leisurely yeah. playing and hanging out with their best wigs, their best clothes, yeah. all of these things. And and it's in a tomb and it means passing. And these euphemisms can, mm -hmm. this word to pass, um, like a rite of passage, mm -hmm. is something that you find in many different languages independently of one another. You don't have to diffuse this word. Yeah. And, and it can be created independently in many different cultures. And the fact that it shows up on like the coffins of Khonsu and Senegem mm -hmm. of the 19th dynasty from Dero Medina, for example, with the husband and wife, um, Senegem and his wife, E. Nefertiti, playing, playing um, Senet, is super interesting. Also, Nefertari in her tomb in the Valley of yep. the Queens is playing Senate. Yep. And you also see them, the girls and the king playing Senate in the harem scenes from the High Gate mm -hmm. at Medinet Habu, the, the funerary temple of Ramses III, temple of millions of years. So Senate, in my opinion, and I haven't published this, and I don't know if anyone else has, and maybe, Amber, you can do a Google Scholar and see if putting in Egyptian game Senet and sex has any sort of hits. Mm -hmm. um, but I think it's associated with sexuality too. And so, and people might be like, wait, you just said it was associated with death. And I don't think these, these things are mutually mm -hmm. exclusive. I think you can have Senet be associated with, with sexuality and the sexual act itself. And certainly for the ancient Egyptians, the sexual act was a method of creating rebirth after death. And so, the the idea of human sexuality as a mechanism to to create rebirth is oh, um, yeah. works for me and in effort so you have it in the harem scenes right mm -hmm. repeatedly that they're, they're mm -hmm. playing senate with the king and you know he's touching a piece and the girl's yep. touching a piece and it, it is an illusion for sexual congress mm -hmm. um and and then there's also Nefertari in her tomb. She's playing it alone. Yeah, but I would like. You, but you can't show that there's no king in the tomb. There's no king in the tomb. Because if he, can't he was be there, there, he would supersede her. But I want everyone to Google this for me. Go to the tomb of Nefertari and look up the scene of her playing Senate and notice that her garment is splayed wide open, showing her naked body all the way down the front. Oh, yeah. And it is extraordinary that she's like, it's like a sexual act with something 
with someone. It's, mm-hmm. it's there for elites to be able to see and understand the euphemism thereof, but we don't quite get what's going on. But I think it's a euphemism for sex. It's a euphemism for rebirth after death. Mm-hmm. Um, and that, that scene of Nefertari, when I, when I started to g- give it a really close look, I was like, what the fuck? Look, look at that, that garment just opened. Yeah. And then it reminds you of the work that Ellen Morris has done with her article about the, what is it called? The cultic flash? What is that article? Um, well, it's the Henner one, right? Yeah. Um, with the Hathor dolls. Right. The paddle dolls. Paddle dolls and also yeah. the part of the, the Horace and Seth mm-hmm. uh, mythology, oh, the New oh, Kingdom one yes. where Hathor, when, when Preherachti is alone and sad and his shrine is empty and all of these the things flashing. and he's feeling sorry for himself, she goes up and, and lifts her skirts or mm-hmm. whatever it is and, and flashes him her in, uh, Betsy's cultic her nether reveries. Region. Yes, it's, in, Bet- it's in Betsy Bryan's cultic reveries as well. Mm-hmm. And so this idea of flashing the nether regions is like... Um, it's, it's a way of bringing life to something that's dire and deathly and sad and, um, well, and like, to reawaken someone, yeah, right? Like, whoop, yeah. Awake. Gets, it's shocking. Yes. Gets the sexual juices flowing. Yeah. And, um, and so the idea of Nefertari having that garment opened, I think, in her tomb, in that, and only there. Mm-hmm. So, and I haven't done a systematic look, but... I've looked through those scenes not super systematically and super carefully. You, everyone can look. They're very well published by the Getty online. So you can mm-hmm. go and look at all of Nefertari's scenes. The tomb is completely there, which is so unusual and wonderful to have that resource. Look through her garments. Look through what she's wearing. And I think it's only the Senate scene where her, her mm-hmm. garment is splayed open, showing her skin all the way down the front. But because she's in profile... You don't get to see the cultic yeah. flash. You don't get to see her nether regions, her hoo-ha. But it's like... Um, but it's... The, oh, yeah. yeah. It's all the way open. It's all the way open. And that... There was meaning there. And we don't know exactly what that meaning was. Mm-hmm. I think also... And on, like, not other ones. They're so then like this is a research topic. What a fun paper to go through and, and examine all of these different openings of the garment. And I think check the Kansu coffin mm. um, and see if it's open there too. There, something is being communicated here that they don't want to say out loud. Mm-hmm. Um, that's, that's a little bit too much, but it is a very sexual, very sexual thing. So yes, the Egyptians played games. This is one of them. And I could t- apparently talk about it well, for yeah. hours. Like it's a game that's actually played, but it also metaphorically has like within a tomb context, has this sense of passing mm-hmm. or yeah, sexual, the sexuality. I think, I think it's passing, all these things. Is the passing something so visceral as the movement of a penis into a vagina? I mean, is it that literal? And if it is that literal, then that would explain. And the piece is pierced mm-hmm. into. So when you move a piece, you take it out of one hole, you put it into another yeah. hole. One piece is phallic and one piece is vulvic. And then you go from there. Um, that kind of play of iconography is something you see in the harem scenes from the High Gate of Medina and Habu as well. And I'm publishing more on this um, shortly. But it's it's uh, super interesting to see, for instance, in the High Gate, to see the king holding a mandrake fruit mm-hmm. cut in half. And he holds it right where his yep. erection would be. So he can't show his, his penile erection. That would be inappropriate. Yep. He's the king. Only, you know... Um, Min or Amun Min or Amun Jesser Ah gets to show that, but he's going to show it 
by, by, with the euphemism or yep. the iconography of holding the, the cut mandrake fruit, mm -hmm. which if you apply to the penis, apparently is the ancient Viagra of the day. So, um, it, there's, there's a lot going on with Senate. That's, that's really interesting. Are, are they really taking penis shaped plain sticks and shoving them into holes? Is that really the way we should see it? Am I am I just seeing sex everywhere? I think um, it's. I, I don't know. As with all Egyptian things, I think it's like a little bit of everything. Yeah. Right. Like it's. I think it's also been interpreted to be like the cause journey. Yeah. Like through the afterlife or whatever, but like that is also sexual because yes. you need to be like reborn and all these connotations between every sex time, and death. Every time the sun god died. He entered the mouth yep. of his mother and became the bull of his mother and impregnated his own future yep. self. So, so it's all sexual. It's all sexual. Death is sex yep. for the ancient Egyptian. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so, yes. Or after death is sex. After. Well, because you need to be reborn. Yes. And how do you be born? You have to be procreate. Yeah. So it needs to be there. Procreate yourself. Yep. Yeah. And then there are other games, too. I was going to say, yeah, there are um, other games. Vampire Hound, Man. Hounds and um, Jackals. There's Hounds and Jackals. I don't know how to play this game. No yeah. One, I, I don't but know there's one in, um, in A4, um, Amenem Hot, the fourth's tomb. Oh, really? In the 12th century. From Hawara? Or um, from? The really pretty one. Oh, wow. Look at that. It's beautiful. Is it, they didn't find it in his tomb, but found it on, it's an art market piece Howard probably. Howard Carter found oh my goodness. a complete gaming set And it's in, ivory? Yeah. That's yep, gorgeous. Ivory. Where is it now? Met. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, um hit the fourth? That's what it says. Oh my goodness. But we don't have anything from Almanem hit the fourth. Who the hell is he? I know, we'll have to look into it. Okay. But it's in the Met, so we can check into it more. Okay. Um, and um, there's, um... Mechen or whatever, the snake one. Oh, yes. I don't know much about this. Me neither. It, you know, it's, it's like, like in the form of a snake. In, yeah, in the form of a coiling snake, and yeah. you have game pieces that you put on it. Senate's the best one, and mm -hmm. you can still buy, like, I have a Senate. I don't they, have a Senate. And they make, like, rules. There's no sex in those rules. We need to make our own no. Senate and sell it. <laughs> but Mehen <laughs> dates, like, back, the Mehen game board, like, those are pretty dynastic. They have examples. Yeah. We so can make a back. spin the bottle Senate. Yeah. <laughs> Come on. It would sell, like, hotcakes. Uh, and we could be like, every dollar you spend goes to graduate students at UCLA. Yeah. <laughs> it would be brilliant. Kiss your nearest Egyptian pharaoh. But yeah, so I mean, they had a lot of other ways of play. Like obviously we see like in some tombs, like kids playing with balls mm -hmm. and dolls. We have mm -hmm. some examples of and, um, you know, like miniature, like little like pools, I think they found later of like like wagons or carts or something yeah. like little kid yeah. wooden pulls um pull toys pull toys not yeah. a pole yeah pull pull toys pull toys okay. yeah or like people wrestled and mm -hmm. that's how we played as a child like we wrestled um games mm -hmm. so the wrestling sometimes got out of hand yeah well of course one, and then you your know, mom comes and yells at you and my then... mom didn't come in and yell at us the wrestling just got out of hand and yeah. then we had to figure it out on our own <laughs> Well, just, someone ends up crying, and then it's like, yes, okay. Yes, It's interesting. Yeah, I think that's probably, you know, yeah, Senate was more maybe the, like, board games were more the elite. Yeah. Because um, they were honestly the only ones who probably had a lot of free time. Yeah. <laughs> and then other, like, pastimes, hobbies, that's a larger question, but, you know, the, the elite men could go out fishing mm -hmm. and fowling. They could go out hunting in yeah, the hunting. desert. Um, the women would engage in weaving. Is it fun? I mean, probably it's okay to hang out with your with your besties oh, yeah. and 
gossip like and a, leave. Like, like a higher, you're not like leaving for like quantity's sake. So you're not like have to work at this. You're leaving for quality. Yeah. And so, yeah, it might be more like embroidery, like a fancy lady. Yeah. Kind of thing. Listen, I guess you could, if you were rich, you could have like musicians or mm -hmm. dancers mm -hmm. while you just sat and relaxed. And I wonder if the elites ever got to get up and dance. But yeah, I'm sure they every now and then partook. Yeah. During a good festival. Yeah. I mean, um, Jeff's teaching ancient uh, Egyptian religion right yeah. now for the undergrads. And so he, following what I did when I taught religion, which is you look up every day in the book of good and bad days. Oh, that's awesome. And you bring it in, you tell the students, like, this is what they said. This is a bad day. Well, Today so, is a bad day. <laughs> so literally, since he started teaching, every day has been a festival. Really? And Yeah. And then, like, on last Friday, it was like, do not do anything. If you do something, it's bad. You're still supposed to be relaxing. And That's awesome. Like every day has been like yesterday was the festival of ISIS. Before that was, you know, but it's it's like festival time because it's the season it's of the, the flood. It's the new year. Yep. It's the new year. It's yeah. the floods. Just the came. rising of Sirius and yep. all of these things. That's so wonderful. So it's like festival, festival, festival. So what are you going to do? You can't farm. You can't. Yeah, there's no, there's not a lot of work to do. Drinking. Mm-hmm. So playing Senate. That's awesome. I, I need a better handle on the calendar and yeah. when festivals were. And I, we're never trained in this. And I, I told Jeff that actually, because I just saw a new book was released yeah. about medieval time. Yeah. And they went through like each by season, it broke it down and it told you like in spring, like these are the festivals or holidays yeah. that were happening when this is like, you know, when you would start planting your grain and stuff. And yeah, it would be nice to have a popular book a, like that. Some sort of a trade book mm -hmm. would be lovely. You know, like in our August, like what 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 was going yeah. on? All these festivals were happening. Yeah. The flood was coming, and yeah, you know we have no conception of. I think it's easier with European countries because it's based off you know like Catholicism, and a lot of those holidays we still have. Well, it's based off a seasonal a seasonality that's not African. Yeah, it, or, North Africa has seasons, obviously, but European seasons are very very different. Yeah. So. And like when yeah, it it's based dark. off Catholicism, which is based off a whole variety of pagan religions yeah. based on light and dark. Yeah. yeah. But like, you know, a, a dark, you know, a equinox or something like this, like that makes sense. But Egypt is hard because the sea, the, the flood messes with the like seasons. It's like the opposite of when you think it it's should be. It's all the opposite. And when so, they're harvesting, it's like in our winter. Exactly. And, and so you're like, what? That's where I have a, a problem It's in like my Australia mind. where it's like the opposite. Yeah. Yeah. It's like cold Even, there right now. But it's versus, there in the northern yeah. hemisphere, so it's super confusing. Yeah, well, it's like, yeah, the Nile messes with. You think like, oh, the Nile should be flooding like in the spring. And mm -hmm. it's like, no, it's late summer. Mm -hmm. So, but yes, I was like, someone should write a book about that. Get like, to the it, Egypt, Jeff. The Egyptian year, like mm -hmm. seasonally and what's going on, like festivals and stuff. Yeah. Our next question from Marissa. Okay, so this is... Um, Marissa commented that she was looking at a lot of tomb, um, like reconstructions of tombs with like causeways and um, all these things, tomb plans, overhead shots of tomb plans that have like a, um, I think she was looking at the ones that are like the Middle Kingdom, um, ones that have like the little temple and then a huge causeway and then like the superstructure tomb chapel and then it's like royal up. tomb. Not royal. I don't, private I, tombs. I think they're private. Not Assassin type tombs. Not Iron Age tombs with the causeway and and a 
Do they pylon. have like a front chapel pylon thing? They did. Okay. They did. Okay. 25th, 26th so Dynasty, that. Thebes, and Assasiv, you would have okay. that kind of a causeway pylon action. So that type of tomb. Okay. And like Montu Emhat or okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Kabasa mm -hmm. or something like that. Yeah. So she was like, I'm not sure if I'm seeing something or not, but is there sexual nature that she was thinking like the causeway being this kind of phallic sense and then the tomb being vaginal, like this opening to the cliff and the tomb and the tomb then being, you know, like a womb and whether or not there's any... She was like, am I just seeing things and like reading into it or is <laughs> well, there... Well, we just did that with the Senate game, so I it's a perfect follow-up question. I think the tomb being like vaginal yeah. like, is not that... It is not yeah. crazy because the coffin is a womb. Yep. It is a, a gestational cavity for the dead to crawl into so that they can be reborn. The tomb chapel or the burial chamber, the shetai, is also a gestational cavity, cavity that you put the dead into so that they can, yeah. they can gestate. And the, it makes sense too that Hathor, the goddess of sex, yeah. you could say, is also the goddess of like, you can see her depicted as a cow like popping out of the cliff. And yeah. she's the one who's like welcomes you to that liminal space between, you know, entering a tomb or something like this. I think what it is, is if you look at the causeway and the pylons and the open courts, because usually the pylon will lead to an open yep. solar court, even if it's sunken, which will then go into an offering hall in a very temple-like way mm -hmm. in the in the tomb chapel space and then go into the more private um, uh, rooms in the back with more more private cultic activity. But all of them are meant to be the journey of the sun god yes. through space and time. And as we just talked about. <laughs> the sun god has to rebirth himself sexually, absolutely. And the sun god is, you know, how does a sun god exist at night? Mm -hmm. Where is the sun at night? Where is yeah. life during death? Mm -hmm. How do you create life after death? How does the cycle continue? Because this is what humans want. The Egyptians were no different. Mm -hmm. They wanted the cycle to continue. So the pylon, as we know, is the ahet. Yep. It's the horizon. horizon. It's the liminal space where the sun is going below the western horizon into death and then rising peaks up. Back out. Yeah, peaks back out, rising up the eastern horizon into a rebirth, into a new so in a way, if anything, the horizon should be more feminine. Well, the sun is the masculine. Well, it yeah. is ahet. The it horizon is itself word. is the feminine. And your Hathor cow coming out of the mountain, mm -hmm. I think, is on point. That's the receptacle that the sun is embraced and taken into. And that is the womb. And it does esque Mm-hmm. That's the womb. So it, it, it takes it and embraces it. And then a covered... It eats it, it but also births it. Yes. It devours it, but also births it. Yes. And it's back to this idea of women, like female goddesses being destroyers, but also... I love it. You know, it's this this play with women being destructive, but also the givers of life. I completely agree. Yeah, it's just interesting. And then the causeway, it is like this long channel. Mm -hmm. It's it's the river channel. It's the it's the ejaculation. It's the the movement of an F flux yeah. from one place to another it's the solar Dream. movement which happens in a line right the sun doesn't go up and down and all around it moves in a line through the sky a very clear and distinct line and the through causeway you, I guess yeah yes the causeway is that clear and distinct line mm -hmm. you move from this point to that point and you you will create and recreate yourself along that line yeah I think so that's the way I would see it because like if Ra's on his boat Mm -hmm. sailing through so it has yeah. this riverine and rivers are you know 
straight lines yeah. in a sense. Yeah. Um, and we can't see it, but if the lights all go out, the Milky Way is there as the river of the sky. Yeah. And so if you're a person who's like, it's an amazing thing that it's completely dark. It. Maybe you're on a new moon night and there's no light at all. Uh, and you're like, what well, the sun is gone. It is set and it's pitch black and we can't see anything, but there is this Milky Way in the sky. Yeah. So in your mind, you can think, well, and the Egyptians did come up with a lot of these ideas that the sun is inside of the sky and that its light is what makes those stars mm -hmm. come forth. Yeah. Yeah. So it's moving through this space and even the Milky Way is in that in that nice mm -hmm. straight line that when it moves, it moves in the line. It doesn't it doesn't deviate. It's it doesn't go into a crooked sailing course. All around. No, yeah. no, that would be bad. <laughs> yeah. And then the planets are going to move along an ecliptic, also a straight line. So when Venus rises and sets and Mars mm -hmm. rises and sets and these things don't happen every day, but when they move through the heavens, they go along the ecliptic along another mm -hmm. straight line. So these paths, they're tracking up. Yeah. Yeah. You have to track these paths and arches. that's for the Egyptians. Then that's your jet, your, um, linear time. your linear time, your mechanism for rebirth. But it's also a nechech that that jet connected to other things then can connect cycle through and, right? co and come back again. Sirius and again. rises every year. Yes. It's a cyclical time. Well, yeah, so Marissa, I don't think you're seeing things. There definitely no. are sexual connotations to all these. As I, as I told my 12-year-old son the other day, I'm like, sex is everywhere. What's the it saying? It negotiates uh, everything's everything. about sex, except sex is about power. Yes, I love that. Whose line is that? Um, it's actually, uh, nah, he's icky now, but um, from that show on Netflix with, okay, we have to look this up because I don't remember his name. Oh, uh, Game of Cards? Game of Cards. Space, um, Spacey. Spacey. Yeah. Um, Kevin Spacey. So it's his actor says that. And I, once I heard Everything's that. Everything's about sex except, except sex actual sex because then about it's power. about power. That's a great line. Yeah. So it's everything's about line. sex. But he, sex. he's the perfect person and he, yeah, to say exactly. that. Yeah, exactly. He harassed, assaulted all those men. So some people get super upset and they're like, not everything's about sex. I'm like, really? Because to me, it's the most powerful thing in the world. Money's about sex. Force is about sex. Religion is about sex. Mm -hmm. It's it's all there. Even if it's not about sex purposefully, it's about sex. It's because it's about people. Yeah. So our next question is from Kip. Yeah. And they ask, so this is a teaching question. Yeah. What textbooks do you use in teaching the Egyptian language? And I had other people also ask, mm -hmm. like, how do you learn hieroglyphs? Right. Um, at UCLA, is there just one course about Egyptian or are there multiple at mm -hmm. different levels? Once one completes these courses and wants to practice reading hieroglyphs, forget hieratic and demotic, way too hard, what books or resources do you recommend? And they're not way too hard. Depends on how far you get. But it is hard to do hieratic and demotic without actual instruction if you're teaching yourself. They're just hard because, like, everyone's handwriting is different. Mm -hmm. So you get used to one, you're like, yeah, I got it. And mm -hmm. then you switch to a new hand and you're like, oh, uh, that looks like mm -hmm. I don't know what these And there's are. still ancient texts where things smudge or people oh, yeah. didn't write with enough ink or they're doing it really quickly yep. and you're like, I have no idea what that says. Um, but that happens when I'm reading my own notes, which is why I always <laughs> use an iPad so that I don't have to yeah, read my own handwriting. Yeah, sometimes your handwriting, I'm like, holy shit, my handwriting's hard. Sometimes I look at it, you like, like leave what? notes on stuff, and I'm like, I know. Uh... This is why I try not to. But sometimes I get lazy and I just write it on yeah, the PDF, like the doctor signature, and people can't figure out what the hell I'm saying. But anyway, um, well, we'd have to ask Dr. Jonathan Winterman, who mm -hmm. teaches language at UCLA right now, and the I know what he uses. Well, get, go for it. He uses Gardner. Yeah, but he uses he supplements. Supplemental gardener for the basics, right? And then yeah, he supplements. You amend amended gardener mm -hmm. <laughs> um, with well, you could use Allen. No, he uses Hope. 
but I like Hoke, which is he a uses Chicago. James Hoke. Which is a Chicago method, because I learned on Hoke. Hoke is not, he's dead now. Yeah, he May he passed. rest in peace. But he is not, did he get his PhD from Chicago? That I don't know, but he was a University of Toronto mm -hmm. person who's using the so-called Polotsky method. Yeah. And the Polotsky method is what is represented in the James Hoke book, which you can still buy on Amazon. And it is a... I think you can find a PDF of it online for free. Can you really? Mm -hmm. oh, okay, well, there you go. Yeah. And it's got... It's got all kinds of exercises. exercises. I've worked with the James Hoke for I like two decades one. now. Yeah. And I think it's the best way to go for yeah. me. Jim Allen's book it's confusing. is hard. And Jim Allen has changed his theory of how the Egyptian language works so many times. Yeah, there's like different, it's like, are you using the first or the second edition? Which yeah. Allen's theory are you? Because he completely gets rid of verb forms. Yeah. And he has only one verb form, now. one sejimaf, <laughs> and that's pretty tough. And... I mean, the thing about Jim Allen, if you're a real serious scholar, Jim Allen only has exercises and examples that are actual Egyptian things. Well, Hawk does too. They're all from, well, no, he has those like fake like sentences. That's he has true. fake sentences at the beginning and yeah. a lot of his exercises might be fake sentences. And he puts them all into like very readable glyphs. Right. He, like retyped them. Right. So they're very But legible. do you find Jim Allen's readable? Honestly, I've never even like worked with Allen stuff. Like I've, I've taught had, it. I've taught it. Like I've had, like when I learned, like Jan, I learned under Jan Johnson at Chicago, and she like amended Hook. Like as we would go through, yeah. she'd be like, "I don't like like cross that part out and right. like add this thing in." So it was like her bringing in her personal knowledge of the but language. That's what they use at Chicago. It's Hulk. James Hook. Yeah, yeah. It, I mean, it's just a spiral bound yeah, Kinko's book yeah. that you will buy from Amazon. But it has all the activities, and it, you know, you work yeah. through the activities, yeah. and then once you're done with that. Um, you have the like reader of just glyphs. Yeah. That's debuck. Yeah. We work and then we went to debuck. D E B U C K. Um, Dutch scholar. And that's just a bunch of different passages from mm -hmm. a bunch of different stuff and you just work um, through that. To read Shipwreck Sailor first usually, then you move on to Sinue. Yep. It's all the literary tales. Um, yeah. Middle Kingdom, yep. sometimes early New Kingdom literary tale. Yeah, so you start with Middle Egyptian, mm -hmm. you learn that, and then once you're past that, it's just reading texts. Yeah. And then you can do Old Egyptian, or yeah. Late Egyptian, yeah. or Hieratic, and Demotic, and... Yeah, Coptic, Coptic. if you want. Uh, the, I'll say that there's a, there's a philosophical divide between Jim Allen's book, James Allen as it's published, and then James Ho, old James, um, in that Jim Allen wants to treat each element of the grammar separately and uniquely so he'll have a section on the noun mm -hmm. and then he'll have a section on the the adjective and then he'll have a section on the adverb and and the preposition and it goes from there and so you get a very complete understanding of the preposition before you then move on to a complete understanding like of the adverb or the verb or whatever which is which is really tricky it means that it's better to learn, you know, Alan is a very useful book and it has really good lists and really good um, collections of information, but it's not a grammar that teaches you to read quickly mm -hmm. because you it's will- wait to the end so you know all the parts. <laughs> yes, because without an introduction to the verbal system in any way, shape or form, or an introduction to whatever grammatical element yeah. you're not gonna get to till chapter seven or chapter eight, it's it's really tough to be able to then read and that's why Jim James Hoch is so useful it because he's able to get you reading shipwreck sailor throughout yep. the grammar practice i think he brings it in like around chapter 10 so yeah ucla you essentially start with middle egyptian yeah and then you move on to reading texts you do a couple 
quarters or semesters of Middle Egyptian, you usually get a really good handle on that form since it's the most complete form of the language, I would mm -hmm. say, that we start with. Um, well, I've heard, like, I remember once when Luigi was here, he always starts with Coptic first. Really? And then he's, he's argued that everyone should learn Coptic first because then it makes learning the earlier phase of the language easier and you have this very complete understanding of this language. It's how Jean-Francois Champollion did it. You know, and like he was a Coptologist. taken Coptic, like, it does help a lot. So, mm -hmm. um, but then that's, you know, another form to learn. And Yeah. And I'm no philologist, you know, yeah. I use texts and, and everything for my own social historian pursuits and art historical pursuits, but, and I do teach it, mm -hmm. but it's not uh, my main um, focus. I do lead every year, and we still do it via Zoom because it's just better that way, yeah. um, a text class in which students who are working on dissertations bring in texts that they need to read and lead us through those texts, and most people are sight reading, so it's kind of more of a club than a class. Yeah. And it's really fun. And also because so many of our students come to us with master's degrees, they've already been exposed to some of the, the horrors of philological harassment, which are somehow baked into how we, we teach ancient philology. For whatever reason, there's a lot of classroom shaming, a lot of expectations about how text should be read. Or um, that if you're not good at language, then like you can't be an Egyptologist or right. something. Yeah. And people bring all of that baggage with them when they come to UCLA, and and a lot of people are very high stressed in their well, in their language reading classes. And I'm trying to make language reading much more joyful, much more fun. Yeah. And when when it is like that, it you you do better work. You know, nobody mm -hmm. likes to work stress. This is not the way it should be. Well, I think too part of it's like when you take like glyphs courses, there's like three of you. Yeah. So it's like you can't yeah. like hide or, yeah. you know, you're on display and you this go around Julian taking just, turns reading yeah, and translating. And it's it's very you're yeah. forced to like be oh, no, out and, there and, and then you get and, something wrong. And oh, yeah. what And parse this now. And yeah. what's this verb? And oh, it's circumstantial. Why can it not be yeah. circumstantial? Like you have and to memorize like, oh, no. grammatical. It's like math yeah. times a thousand. Yeah. Like all these rules and. It's, um, it's, it's, it's tough. Yeah. And it's a language that's very unlike the English yes. language or most romance languages. And so it's, it's not an easy thing. And, and um, it requires you to have a good grasp of like linguistic terminology. And which, yet like, you're like, I don't even know if this is in English. And yet talk to anybody who does any sort of Semitic study or Afro-Semitic study. And they will tell you what Egyptologists have come up with as terminology is total bullshit. It's the wrong use of things it's in most wrong. cases. It's wrong. Like and subjunctive, then it's not an actual subjunctive. Or we'll call things an adverbial sentence. And you're like, where's the goddamn adverb? Yeah, I don't see where this is. And no I, verb. I learned to die. Did you learn to diagram sentences? You're no, too young. Yeah. No, I you did. did. You did? Mm -hmm. Amber, did you learn to diagram sentences? Thank God we have some grammarians here. But I'm awful at grammar. I'm, but you did, gra you did diagram yeah, sentences. It obviously didn't, didn't work. <laughs> I'm like the worst at grammar. I like grammar. And I'm and I'm good at it. You and I was. Correct my grammar all the time. You I guys do? read the Substack. Really? Oh, yeah. I check your. I, just, I correct it and. Yeah. No, it's good because I don't see. It. Like I literally you'll, you'll like can't get there. see it. You'll get there. In just, time, you'll the game will slow and you will get there. And writing, effectively in a journalistic style, which is what we're doing on the Substack, mm -hmm. is you know it has it's to be grammatically genre. correct. Yeah. But there's ways of doing it and still have fun oh, and bring your you voice have in and peer review and yeah. check it and. 
Yeah. It's always hard to see your own mistakes in a lot of cases. Yeah. But the, but in short, a lot of the trauma of learning the language that first year and a half or two years mm -hmm. happens elsewhere. And then the students come to us and at UCLA. And then we, we move off in all of the different directions. <laughs> Let go. Yeah. Move forward. Let go. So what other uh, books or resources do you recommend? Um, well, well, Gardner is great, and I, I think probably the most key resource is to get yourself a Sir Alan Gardner Egyptian mm -hmm. grammar because you've got the sign list, yep. you've got a good dictionary, oh, yeah. you've got, there's no better preposition mm -hmm. uh, yes. resource um, for compound prepositions or for single prepositions. I still use it, mm -hmm. and we all still use that sign list. It's insane oh, yeah. how good well, I mean, it is. You cite when you're talking about a sign, Gardner yeah. number G64 or whatever. Yeah, yeah exactly. It's, um, it's, it's really useful. So if you're going to get a Gardner and an Allen and a Hoch, that's three books. It's not going to set you back more than 200 bucks. Yeah, I and think Gardner would be the most, but you could probably get a used copy somewhere. You could. And... You could. And it doesn't oh. matter if Gardner's used. It's a dead I mean, language. It's, it's not going anywhere. The Gardner published it old, too. Yes. So. yes. so there's no updates. And then when you're working with the Allen, I would try to seek out a first or second edition. Because I think they're better. Yeah, the third the and stuff. I think there's four editions right. now. Is that correct? No idea. The third and fourth editions, they're ones where he simplifies the verb to such an extent that there's no difference. Well, and you need to know one and two to then get three and four. Right. So just start with the earlier one. Right. So if you can find an older used copy of Jim Allen, that would be my preferred copy. Um, though Jim Allen himself, and he's a wonderful he's very, fellow. He's, very nice. he's great. He'll fight this to the death. This is the way, and he knows he can read Egyptian like it's the newspaper. He can do this. Yep. So if you're, you know, I, no disrespect to Jim. This is the way he sees it. It works for him, and that's that's yeah, fine. Yeah, maybe he know like he that's his thing. Right. So it's probably just going over my head. <laughs> I'm or sure other people's heads yeah. that are less. In, into it. There are people who are who are philological geniuses who are like, I can work with Alan mm -hmm. if I need to. Yeah. And that's great. I am a more simplistic mind in terms of philology and I need something that that systematizes my translations in a way yeah. such that I can understand. I think too, they're all theories and yeah. in most, you know, it's not every, no theory is perfect. So no. there's always going to be something where you're, and no language is like it's always changing and there's weird exceptions to, I mean, English is a great example of it's the weirdest language and there's not really yeah. good rules yeah. or, you know, there's always so many exceptions to all these rules of English. And, yeah. and when we're trying to make then a theory of a language, how do you incorporate all those things that organically develop over time? It's mm -hmm. hard to grasp all those things. And when you have, and it's a dead language and you only have text to work from, not spoken yeah. And so it gets really messy. And but, well, let me add one other mm -hmm. thing that if you want to then practice after you work your way through the grammar, the best way to do it would be to take your debuck reading book mm -hmm. that you talked about and get your three volumes of Miriam Lichtheim, mm -hmm. L-I-C-H-T-H-E-I-M, and her Polotsky translations, Polotsky-based translations, mm -hmm. are, I would argue, are the best. But anyway, so you get your debuck, your reading mm -hmm. book, get your Miriam Lichtheim literature, and then cheat so yeah, have your debuck open that. we all still do it we all do it and don't say that you don't so you yeah. get your debuck open it up and then open up your Miriam Lich time and then go back and mm -hmm. forth and have your finger on one and your finger on the other look at the translation and see what you can do to try yeah. to make them work there's a lot of work in between right you you have to look up the signs you have to figure yeah. out what the phonetics are you you want a transcription and then a transliteration and then you 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 know you're it, it's um complicated work but it'll teach you more about Egyptian language than 
than you thought was possible. Mm -hmm. It is possible to translate this language. This is not some secret code yep. that we don't know how to work with. It is a real language and it is a real Afro-Asiatic language mm -hmm. um, or West Asian, North African language. And the Egyptians had stuff to say. Yeah, do you have any favorite, like if people wanted to learn glyphs, any, I know, is it Melinda Hurst? Yeah, oh, Melinda Nelson Hurst yeah. has a really good class that's really well suited for beginners mm -hmm. who don't want to go on with academic study. And we can put her website in the show notes. Mm -hmm. But if, but I think that's the best option. It's mm -hmm. all online mm -hmm. um, for people who are interested, but you know, not pursuing a career in it or going. Yeah. And it's not super expensive yeah. because if you wanted to do an actual class at UCLA, like say, and we, we offer them occasionally, mm -hmm. say you wanted to do an intensive class at UCLA, it's going to cost you like $4,700 mm -hmm. to take an intensive eight week, five hour a day course at UCLA. It is possible, but is that really where you're going to be able to put yeah. all of your money? I don't know. And like, yeah, the, if it's, you're doing it just as a hot hobby on the side or mm -hmm. something, you don't want anything like that intense. Yeah. <laughs> it's it's going to be overwhelming and scary. Yeah. You want it to be fun still. Yeah. So um, something like that would be good. Or I think there's some other like books like how to learn hieroglyphs and stuff. Um, yeah. You know, there's the Collier always... and Manly. Mm -hmm. Everyone always suggests the Collier and Manly because yep. it, it leads you through the language in an easy fashion. I know other people who don't like that book, but, but um, yeah. I haven't worked with it myself. But, you know, but... get your different resources and, mm -hmm. and give it a shot. Mm-hmm. Um, okay, so for our next question from Joshua, what effect did Alexander have on Egypt truly when he only ruled for six months, right? Hmm. He conquers Egypt and then goes away and then dies. Hmm. Was he really a savior, perhaps just the nail in the coffin for Egypt? Was this the end of quote-unquote local rule? Like, we, we talk about, you know, Alexander is the harbinger <laughs> of, uh, you know, the Greco, the Ptolemaic later Ptolemaic dynasty mm -hmm. um, and Greco Greco Greek culture has such a huge impact in Egypt. Mm -hmm. um, and so, you know, Alexander, I guess you could argue started this trend, but yeah, he only actually rules it for six months. Yeah. And then we have all these um, interesting tales where they're trying like myths that come up where they're trying to make Alexander the sun um, of a like Samtak or something like this to mm -hmm. make him like Egyptian. Like they're trying to claim him in different regards and mm -hmm. different ways. He's maybe buried, brought back to Egypt to be buried there. Um, obviously, all this stuff is like posthumously. Yeah. The Ptolemaics are trying to link themselves to Alexander. Um, so yeah, arguably Alexander himself, not a lot of effect. He was there briefly, conquered the country pretty quickly, went to Siwa, and then left and continued his conquests to the east. Yeah, it's an interesting question, and I'll, I'll hit it as completely as I'm able to right now. Let's see. You know, Alexander in his lifetime does what so many men, imperialist men, do when they come into the Egyptian cultural space, which is become overwhelmed by its religiosity mm -hmm. and its continuity and its archaism and antiquity, its great cultural power. That cultural power overwhelms them so much that many of these men become subservient to it, which is really mm -hmm. interesting to see a man who really tries to divinize himself 
-hmm. he comes into Egypt and he feels the power of this place, sees it probably through a cynical sort of lens of I can use this to help aggrandize my well, own political power. From, like where he is in Greece, it's a very decentralized or Macedon, like inherently more decentralized not doesn't have thousands of years of centralized government and no a secondary you know, state like yeah so he's coming to egypt and he's like like they're doing something right and i want a piece of this but he comes from a monarchy system so yeah. he understands the core of what a dynasty a family dynasty mm -hmm. is how it's created what it means and he understands that the egyptians have got a much deeper and more canny understanding of how to bolster that monarchy with a religious base mm -hmm. than anyone else. So you could argue that Julius Caesar understood this only too well, but it was his undoing, that Mark Antony understood this very well. It was Alexander's undoing too. Also his undoing, it was Alexander's undoing, though he's, he, he dies died. in Babylon, yeah. but yes. And, and then you could say it's Hadrian's um, siren call as well. It, it calls many imperialists. Um, Persians too. Mm -hmm. um, so, but, but I will say that Alexander is not the first Greek to set foot on Egyptian soil by any means, no. right? No. Um, we have with the 26th dynasty, a great number of Greeks coming in to act as mercenaries mm -hmm. in the region. Um, the creation of the first coinage mm -hmm. is, is used to pay them whatever money, how are you to find money? This is the invention that is, is created at this time period and and all kinds of settlements are created in the delta particularly in the western Crosses, i'm sorry yeah. in the eastern delta um to to settle some of these greek mercenaries and so there's there's a greek occupation mm -hmm. it's a big word but i think it fits mm -hmm. of the delta regions that had already been happening for some time mm -hmm. which is following upon a libyan occupation mm -hmm which is following upon a migrant sea people's occupation. Mm -hmm. So the Delta is like this mixing, it's a mixed area of all of these New different York. languages <laughs> and ethnicities and peoples yeah. and people all coming into this rich place mm -hmm. to find their fortune in some way. And Alexander is, um, you know, one of many to come in. But I don't think in. he was like the nail in the coffin either. Arguably mm -hmm. the Assyrians were, I think had a much greater impact. And I agree. There's, a power vacuum that Alexander yeah. and they were looking to, you know, the Egyptians. I mean, you could argue whether they welcomed him or, you know, maybe the elites, obviously. You know, what is native? What is pure Egyptian? What is not? Yeah. When you get into the Iron Age, things get really tricky. And when you're talking about, for example, the 21st dynasty, and, and we're talking about the year 1000 BCE mm -hmm. into 900, but you're talking about Pionk and Harry mm -hmm. Hor and all of these guys who have Libyan origins. Are they Egyptians? Are they immigrants who Egyptianize and make good? How, do you, how are we to understand yep. what Egyptian is and where is the purity here? But they set themselves up as Egyptians. Mm -hmm. We accept them as historians that, as Egyptians, yep. no problem. But when the 25th dynasty invades from Sudan, and the Kushites come in, they remark that all of these, these different competing dynasties, these Libyan dynasties are feather wearers who are eating fish and aren't following the Egyptian <laughs> rules and who are doing everything wrong. Mm -hmm. So the Nubians coming in from modern day Sudan come in and say, oh my goodness, these, these people are not Egyptian at all. We are yeah, we're more the Egyptian. Of Egyptian. We culture. know what we're doing, yeah. but these people didn't. 
And then, it's as like you, arguably, yeah, the Kushites are great at harkening back to yes. like old kingdom continuity, like, archaism, yeah. the origins. Like they did of have things. that knowledge. Yes, of they did. The the history and claimed to be more Egyptian than the people who were ruling Egypt at the time. But as you say, the nail in the coffin would be 664, 663 BCE yep. with the Assyrians coming in, well, sacking Memphis, Memphis. <laughs> sacking Thebes, taking out Taharqa, um, and the, the Assyrians kidnapping Taharqa's family uh -huh. and his son, the crown prince. And then they set up their puppet dynasty, the 26th dynasty yep. of a number of Libyans, another Libyan family, mm -hmm. right? Are they Egyptian? Are we to think of them as Egyptian? It's complicated because within the 26th dynasty, there's even a coup yep. with Ahmosa II, whom we call in the literature Amasis, mm -hmm. who's pushing back in a nativist fashion against a lot of these, these 26th dynasty lineages. So there's already a whole lot of infighting, mm -hmm. right? You know, and, and then before the Persians come with the ah. 27th, right? So it's the, messy. It's <laughs> super messy. But the other thing to remember is when you're when you're working through these texts that really laud Alexander as this god, the the savior of the Egyptian people, you're reading Greek texts, mm -hmm. you're reading Greek propaganda, you're reading Orientalist Greek propaganda that's very anti-Persian, mm -hmm. and the Persians are set up as this evil empire that must be destroyed at all costs, and Alexander is the one who comes in and saves yeah. them. But all Alexander is doing, really is taking the Persian Empire whole cloth, yep. taking it himself, and with his superior military mm -hmm. strength, is able to do so very, very quickly. Yep. So what Alexander- but doesn't hold it. No. Right? But, even though he died, afterwards his generals piece it up. A lot, most of those don't yeah. even like hold. What Alexander does, I would argue, is he introduces a new decentralization to the system that the Mediterranean, North Africa, and West Asia hadn't seen in some time. Mm. Because the Persians had united that and it was one working empire. Alexander takes that working empire mm -hmm. in the fourth century BCE, takes it as his own, dies very, very young, yeah. and then it's parceled out into four different parts. Mm -hmm. And now you've got competition that you didn't have before. Yeah. There's coalitions, they're going to work together, you know, two against two, three against one. Mm -hmm. <laughs> they're working against things on their margins. Oh, they don't like their boundaries. Yeah. Like Ptolemy and the Seleucids always fighting over the Levant and yeah. yeah. And it's super complicated, but the Ptolemies are just one of those mm -hmm. pieces of what had previously been the Persian Empire as a large conglomerate. Yeah. Um, how different was it, you might ask? Because fighting outright warfare between all of these different parts is not useful. Mm -hmm. An empire is never united. It's never direct rule. You can't do direct rule with imperial yeah systems. It's too big. Yep. You have to set up and delegate different peoples who are going to be able to do what you need th a thousand miles away. Mm -hmm. Because even with the messenger riding full tilt with 18 different horses along the way, he's not going to be able to get there. But so for, you know, two yeah. months from now or something, yeah. if he's coming from the capital of of um, Persepolis and going all the way to to Egypt and, and Tanis or, or Bubastis or wherever mm -hmm. it is he's going. So it's... Um, it's as, it's kind of like super different and yet exactly the same. Yeah. And I know that's that's annoying to hear me say, but it's it's kind of the way that it is. It's it's the the same imperial system with occupations of people who are not necessarily from those places, mm -hmm. 
and who are creating dynasties that they need to maintain so that they can maintain their occupation of those places. Mm -hmm. And so that what happens with Alexander is he first solidifies an interest in maintaining a royal or a dynastic support of Egyptian gods, divinities, and temples. Mm -hmm. So their religious structure is not considered aberrant or problematic or something that needs to be taken down, which the Assyrians may not have thought because they burned all of their temples, right? And you can still see the scars of it in Luxor to this day at the Temple of Karnak. So he, he gives a foundation for that Egyptian religious system, number one. And then number two... He he creates, with his death, the Ptolemaic dynastic mm-hmm. family because his general, Ptolemy, yep. then settles in Egypt and he's like, this area is mine. It's arguably, like, Ptolemy as, you know, seeing this opportunity with Alexander dying, monopolized, picked, uh, of, honestly, of, of the four, I think Egypt was the best one to pick. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, sets up this dynasty. So, yeah, Alexander maybe, like, started it all. Um, but it was Ptolemy being at the right place at the right time and seeing this opportunity and taking yeah. it. And they found this city of Alexandria that will become the metropolitan mm-hmm. center of the entire Mediterranean and West Asian and European world, yeah. North African world. pretty telling that Alexander set up like a bunch of Alexandrias mm-hmm. across the whole empire. Yeah. But what's the one you know of when you hear Alexandria? You hear you the think Egyptian, of Egyptian one. Yeah, absolutely. But there's, you know. The Alexandrian Egypt is in many ways a creation of Alexander, his coming to Egypt, his connection with the religion, and then his very quick death thereafter. And and that's 300 years mm-hmm. of Greco-Roman Egypt that's incredibly important for building temples like Dendra or Edfu or Philae. Yeah. And continuing to develop the Egyptian language and Egyptian religion. Mm-hmm. And, um, and, and then, of course, you get all of these texts coming down to us about Egypt, including, well, Herodotus is written in the Persian period, mm-hmm. pre-Alexander the Great, but still, it's important. But a lot of other um, Greek texts that talk about Egypt. And Manetho was of this culture mm-hmm. in the 3rd century. Mm-hmm. So he, he's living in Ptolemaic Egypt as an Egyptian to write about yeah. The continuity, who's setting him up to do that? Really, we should look at Manetho with, we should look at Manetho as being an Egyptian writing about his people under occupation. Mm-hmm. And if you did that, you would, you would look at it with an agenda set up mm-hmm. from the dominant Greek speaking yeah, who's his audience? Population. Who's he trying to please? Exactly. Yeah. And then if you look at it from that perspective, it changes the history and what he wrote down a mm-hmm. great deal. Yeah, what he yeah. chose to include yeah. and why. And... Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, there's, so... I mean, obviously you can write books and books yeah. and books about this. It's huge. And it's also not what Jordan and I do. Yeah. Um, That's it's a not whole, our jam. Like, other. Yeah. But yeah, so but Alexander, we teach it, you know, he, like you could argue about how much impact he really had. Um, but I definitely wouldn't say but he you was could like. you that about any individual ruler. Yes. Working within a system. You, you, you could even argue it about. Putin or Hitler, and it seems like, yes, they have this incredible will to dominate and invade and do all of these things. But one could also ask, if there weren't a Putin 
or there weren't a Hitler, wouldn't the social circumstances of people feeling they've su suffered an unfairness or a deprivation or a loss of some kind that they need to rectify? Someone else would be doing it. Would not someone yeah. else jump into this system? The system would there, allows for something yes. like this to happen. Would there not be another Donald Trump or yeah. something like yeah, that? Yeah, yeah. And these are big arguments that we have about revisionist history and can you kill baby Hitler, Hitler and not have World yeah. War II? Or if you kill baby Hitler, would there be a worse Hitler? I don't know the answer to these questions. Or is we like, can't practice them. Yeah. <laughs> and like how much to give credit to the physical person mm -hmm. and their yeah. like nature versus nurture. <laughs> but I like to do my social history as a as a huge super organism mm -hmm. and that things move like a big ship in one direction. Yeah, Hitler became Hitler because of the German society at the time. Yes. Yes. And and could if it not wasn't have Hitler, it would have been some other guy doing something else bad. And how many people in the United States right now feel exactly the same? Mm -hmm. That you you see that we're on the edge of the cliff and the, that people are all jumping off and you're like, wait, no, don't, don't do it. And you can see the climate change happening and please mm -hmm. stop burning the fossil fuels. But the hyper human organism is so intent on this particular agenda that it's very hard to turn the ship yep. into a different direction until things really do blow up from the inside out. need someone to come become e super evil or super good. So, <laughs> and in most cases, it's super or evil. Or the system itself just degrades collapses, yeah. or collapses. Mm -hmm. it, it's usually a punctuated equilibrium um, rather than a slow decline. But there are so slow declines out there. They do happen. Yeah. So yeah, Alexander, not, yeah. definitely not, I you mean, know, yeah. important, but I wouldn't say he ended like he's the cause of Egyptian. Yeah. I mean, don't get me wrong. I don't want to say that the great man theory is completely off. There are, there are those unusual people who are able to do extraordinary things. And Alexander was one of those extraordinary people. But what he did was take over an empire that already exists that he did not make. Yeah. And then it continued after his death in parts that were separated from each other, but worked very well with each other yep. at the same time. So it's just the same system, mm -hmm. just the same system. Yep. We're just building on what the Persians were already, already mm -hmm. had. Which was building on what the Assyrians had already had, which was building on what, you know, you could go on. Yep, exactly. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So our final question is from Kyoros Kuro. Um, I hope that's pronounced correctly. The, the darkness and the shadow. I like it. Chiaroscuro, oh. the yeah. art historical technique, I suspect. Oh, okay. Mm -hmm. It's spelled a little differently, but oh. that makes sense. Maybe. I like it. I Let hope it's see that. It. it looks more like Japanese. Oh, yeah. No, you're right. But it's pronounced? Yeah, it is. Well, we can ask them to tell yeah. us about their name because it's with a K. So, yeah. So they ask, um, curious about any evidence of how people responded to Egyptian occupation, specifically in the Levant... Um, how did the Egyptian forces regard the occupied? How did the occupied regard the Egyptian forces? What evidence do we have for uprisings? By whom? And how did the Egyptian forces try to subdue them? Did the Egyptians exoticize the occupied and how? So relations from the occupied perspective. I mean, it's huge. Where That's do you a, want to start? Uh, I mean, I think... I'm trying to think like the Jaffa evidence that Jacob works with. Mm -hmm. Jacob Dam, um, Jacob who Dam. works with Aaron Burke on their um, excavation of, of Jaffa, yeah. And so he looks at their pottery and food ways. Mm -hmm. um, and obviously, you know, there's your, how you eat and the food you eat and your culture behind all these things. You might use different um, ceramic receptacles in different ways, right? So mm -hmm. you can maybe tell us about a people more bowls versus plates or cups versus goblets and all these things. Right. And there is seemingly, you know, a hybridization that comes about where it seems like they're eating 
both local and Egyptian food. Um, this and, occupying Egyptian army yeah. of this West Asian space. And you see Egyptian style stuff being produced there. So they, the Egyptians, the occupying force, wants their Egyptian stuff um, there. Um, so, but, but it's harder, I think, to access the occupied perspective. Especially it is. in lot. But yeah, you do have uprisings. You do have, they have to reconquer. Um, I mean, you can think, you know, farther north, they're always, who's controlling like Megiddo and um, um, like Kadesh and stuff is always changing hands mm -hmm. and all these things on these, the places along the border between Mitanni and um, Assyria later on and stuff. So they're, they're constantly changing hands, but you only get the perspective of the big powers. Yeah. All the little, little kinglets and chieftains and little kingdoms in the Levant and Syria are just at the whim of these people and getting access to how those, the conquered, live. Yeah. I mean, they would have been enslaved and captured and brought back to Egypt and um, or exploited, exploited in their homelands, if not enslaved. You know, there's yeah. all, like, a, for what we think evidence, there's all that evidence of them bringing back, and, like, Meru, which can be translated as slaves or, or weavers, mm -hmm. um, to work in the weaving workshops mm -hmm. and, and things like this. Or you have the elite children being brought and brought up in the royal household as a bargaining chip right? Um, for both the Levant and Nubia. Yeah. So... I presumably I would assume that the elites want to work with the Egyptians. They see them as something like they have power. I want to be involved in this um, power structure, and they would, you know, the Egyptians would put locals into in place, uh, you know, in head positions. Um, they would keep like local structures in 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 place, but yeah. exact their taxes and stuff and. You it's local ironic, person will keep things going and just, I'm now your yeah. new boss. <laughs> it, it's ironic that the Egyptians in many ways are interesting combinations of both French and British imperialism. Mm -hmm. And I would argue that when they move into the Levant, they're very British in that mm -hmm. they allow the local systems to continue. They don't tear them down. They and put up some garrisons along, you put, know. Put up some garrisons, exploit, extract, but you're not there to necessarily burn things to the ground and build a new yeah. or make it all Egyptian mm -hmm. in a sense. You're allowed to let those things, you'll put up your gate, yep. but you don't need to change the whole area make everyone change their names and speak your language yeah, and you all bring this a stuff. Ramsey, you bring Ramses into the temple and yeah. you, he's worshipped along with Baal now right. or something. But when they go into Nubia, mm -hmm. I think it's more of a French style, which is more of a slash and burn. Like I'm going to take out a lot of what is indigenous here and, and plant what is Egyptian. Because I think where it is on the Nile and how this works is very much Egyptian origins. It's the Egyptian origination story. It's mm -hmm. the source of their water, which is the source of everything that they have mm -hmm. in terms of grain and population and richness and lack of famine compared to rain-fed agriculture. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Amun himself, the flood itself is there. So there is much more cruelty. And I, I haven't read anything on the different strategies of imperialism in this way. Mm -mm. So I'm just kind of speaking out loud and anyone who wants to pick up on this, go for it. But like the idea that there's a different imperialism in the South and in the North is very interesting to me because it's crueler in the South. They don't have what they have in the North, which is a much more cosmopolitan, dug in, older, archaic, 
political system to work with. I'm not saying that what you have in the South is not old, mm -hmm. but you don't have on the other side of those mountains an Assyrian empire to deal with. Yeah. You do have that in West Asia. Yep. And when you go down South, you can exploit with more impunity and cruelty well, and I think than you would up North. Intermeshed more. So maybe you need a stronger hand. I don't know. To be an, an imperialist there. Yeah. And again, and I've said this before on this, on this show, and I'll say it again, that I don't think that the occupation of the Levant and Nubia are imperialistic. Mm -hmm. Though I know people like Alan Morris, whose work I respect a great deal, would disagree. Mm -hmm. I call it a hegemony. Yep. Egyptians, in my opinion, are not imperialists. They don't know how to delegate power. They like direct rule. They mm -hmm. want to be Virgos and control every little <laughs> thing. They, they don't know how to set up a satrap, for yep. example, way yep. far away, a thousand miles away, and let that dude extract his own taxes and do his own thing. They don't have a system set up to yep. do that. It's much more um, centralized, centralized inward-looking, different kind of a system. But that's what's imposed in large part in in Lower Nubia, mm -hmm. which is probably the place that gets the most brunt of the Egyptian occupation. And, you know, I'm talking with a new graduate student. I was just talking to him on the phone yesterday about his dissertation, Charles Rhodes, mm -hmm. who's coming in to work here at UCLA. And this is exactly his topic. Cool. So, you know, as, as we work more on this, what is the product of the occupation in Lower Nubia versus Upper Nubia? What's the product of the occupation amongst mm -hmm. Nubians of different social status groups mm -hmm. or among nu amongst Nubians of different regional origins? These are all things yeah, that like people are working on. Adopt, like, did they adopt the culture? Did they actively reject it? Mm -hmm. um, arguably, Both? it's a nylotic culture too. Yeah. So what, their culture was very... Egyptian already because it's just a pan nylotic a lot of shared traditions from you know the earliest of times yeah um, but then did they later on get labeled as a Nubian or Egyptian or this yeah. or that um, I just would it would be so interesting to have yeah but there was always rebellions and uprisings and you have you know t3 going you know it's always they went up to the Levant and they went down to Nubia and the quashta rebellion mm -hmm. or what that one hats up shit on her ship with the Nubians on the prow and yeah. stuff. Um, there was constantly, there was always yeah. rebellions happening. And I mean, cultural geography is really interesting. And geography doesn't change easily. Mm -hmm. It can change, but it doesn't change easily. And in the ancient world before there's an, a high dam or anything or a dam at all, um, or a canal uh, through the Sinai, there's a continuity that you wouldn't have otherwise. And you can look at Egypt today. Mm -hmm and see its affinity and connection in a Jared Diamond East-West latitudinal connection mm -hmm. with West Asia and UAE, United Arab Emirates, Saudi Arabia, um, Lebanon. You know, these are, these are their people. This mm -hmm. is their connection. And it's so strong that it's even made the Egyptian government today turn a blind eye to Israeli tactics against Palestinians and, and treat them as allies. So mm -hmm. there is a, an affinity for working with West Asia and there is a animosity against people further south. And yes, at this time period, there, is, uh, there are dams going up in Sudan and functioning yeah. in Sudan and in Ethiopia, mm -hmm. which are incredibly threatening. Yeah. to Egyptian culture, way of life, religion, population, you name it. But there is much more um, animosity 
culturally mm -hmm. against people of the South. Yeah. And it's it's um it's pretty mm -hmm. tricky. Mm -hmm. So it's it's interesting to see these things still playing out today. And I'm not trying to say as it is today is exactly how it was mm -hmm. yesterday, but again, geography doesn't change fast. And I understand people weren't building dams, but it's it is interesting to apply that geographical rule that you have economies and politicians that work better on a latitudinal mm -hmm. connection rather than a longitudinal. It's harder to connect north-south. Well, I mean, even thinking, like, if getting from the Levant to Memphis mm -hmm. would be faster than going from Memphis to Napata. <laughs> like, yeah. take yeah. a lot longer. Yeah. Even, even with you're that river, you've downstream. got all those cataracts. Yeah. Cataracts to go around. Yeah. You're still sailing, like, okay, you're sailing downstream, but... It's still, oh, that's actually... No, you're you going upstream. You, you're going upstream. Um, yeah, like, but to get, you can use the river. Oh, you're yes, sailing yes. To the sea. Yes. Um, so you don't have to use a sail. But like, um, but that's still like, if you look at Egypt on the map... From Napata to Memphis. Yeah, that's what I meant. Oh, Napata yeah, sorry, Memphis, sorry, sorry, sorry. Yeah. Um, but yeah, if you're going the other way, it's even longer. Mm -hmm. um, but like, Egypt's really long. Mm -hmm. <laughs> like, the Nile is long. Even like Memphis to Luxor. Yeah. It's a lot of space. Yeah. And like... Delta to Levant, not that far, actually. No. East Delta to Levant, super easy. And this is where so many cultural centers were mm -hmm. for a reason. Why are you going to build your capital there at the Eastern Delta at Pair Ramses for the Ramses period? Why then, when that silts up, are you going to put it at Tanis? Just a little far away, but it's and there still Eastern Delta. East Mediterranean. You want to engage with all of that activity. Why mm -hmm. do you not put your capital on the Western Delta? Well, because there's not a whole lot going on it's in desert. the rest of <laughs> North Africa over there to the West. Yeah. You want it to be nestled up against all mm -hmm. of that cosmopolitanism, that trade, that that income yep. that's going to come at you. And um, there, obviously, there's a lot more we could say. There's other people we could mention. Orosh Matic's work is work. good, is important yeah. here for the violence imposed upon people of, of Nubia uh, through, through the years. Um, and yeah, Stuart Tyson Smith's mm -hmm. work is very, very important. Solange Ashby's work is really important yeah. um, for, for Nubian uh, discussions. And, but yeah, yeah. I mean, we don't have a lot of like, dear diary, I'm upset the Egyptians conquered me. Like, yeah. let's plot this yeah. uprising. We just have the uprising, but I mean, presumably, so maybe some elites were happy with it and were like, okay, here's my opportunity to like ingratiate myself with the Egyptian overlords. Yeah. But obviously other people are probably at the same time might be plotting a coup. And to the average person, does their life really change that much? Yeah. Question mark. Like they're still farming and they're paying taxes to someone. But if the Egyptians roll through and like burn their whole village down, you're going to create some animosity amongst people. Um, so yeah, it's how heavy handed and, and arguably too, maybe the Egyptians had to be more heavy handed with Nubians because they posed a greater threat. Um, cause later on the Nubians do conquer them. They do. So they're more. The Hyksos never got that far. Mm -hmm. They really didn't. If we're yeah. saying, was there ever a Levantine? Well, you could say the Ramesids in a way that the 19th and 20th dynasties are kind of a Levantine conquering. You could mm. maybe. Um, and then the Hyksos before that, you know, they really only were working within a Delta region yeah. and maybe some Delta. parts of Upper Egypt. But sure. yeah, the Kushites did imperially take over the whole place. So maybe there was more of a fear factor there. Mm -hmm. But I mean, when you're dealing with what do people think and feel, you have to work with what's available for the historian. And for West Asia, there's a whole lot. You can work with the Amarna letters. Yeah. 
of the 18th dynasty. Yes, they're only from two particular reigns, but you get an idea of who's connected to whom. Yeah, but you just have all the little tiny Levantine kinglets being like, so-and-so is coming to attack me, like, yeah. come help us. But you get an idea of You're what's going pleading, on. Yeah, they're pleading to these great powers. Yeah. And then you get the letter from them to Babylon being like, the Egyptians are coming, come save us. Because yeah. they know, being this little tiny kingdom, that they're not going to stand a chance against mm -hmm. all these, the great powers. Yeah. So... And you get some cuneiform texts that are yeah. very, very interesting. Obviously, you get... But Nubia... Even the, the Hittite peace treaty is preserved. Mm -hmm. um, that That's amazing. But Nubia, we don't have... Or they turn to. Yeah, you have things have in to... Egyptian yeah. when there is enough of an elite, mm -hmm. higher-level Egyptianization such that texts are written in Egyptian hieroglyphic script, yeah. Middle Egyptian, yeah. late period Middle Egyptian. It would be great to have Amarna letters, but... Wouldn't it For be Nubia. Yeah. I'm like... They had to have been yeah. the well, Viceroy or, or, of Kush and all these things going. Well, maybe, maybe not. I mean, it's an interesting thing. Middle Kingdom fortresses, yeah. like the Semna dispatches. It's all Egyptian stuff, right? It's all Egyptian. It's all Egyptian. Yeah. And Meroitic, the indigenous language that's until written later. down, it, you don't see it develop until later. Yeah. And our, people are just speaking it. And the fact that it's not written down in some ways is its strength because it can't well, be always, captured. It's only verbal. Jeff and I were talking about this uh, yesterday. I wonder if Egyptian and whatever language the people of Nubia were speaking was mutually understandable. I don't know. Because, don't like, know. yes, okay, like, because it's an Afro-Asiatic, yeah. right? So, yeah. like, how different were their languages truly? Like, maybe it's kind of like Polish and Russian where, like, my grandpa could understand Russian. Ukrainian and Russian. Yeah, Ukrainian. Any of the Eastern, like, Slavic tongues. Mm -hmm. Like, yes, they're separate languages, but you can kind of still speak to another. Yeah. Um, or it's really easy to learn the other because it's yeah. pretty much the same language as your own. So, like, would Egyptian, Southern Egyptian dialect, presumably dialect, how far actually different would that be from, like, an upper, you know, Nubian? Probably it was a very similar language. Yeah, I don't know. You know, again, so not, like, not the philosophy of Levant, here. where you like, oh, we need this lingua franca of cuneiform to discuss and communicate and mm -hmm. translators and things like this. I wonder. Uh, so much of what we have to work with are names of places and names of people. And, and you never see someone being like, oh, that's a Nubian name. Except you if, do. Except like, if Tana his name Tawamani is or the Nubian, like Taharko. They, they are yeah. different names. They are. And some of these queens' names, they, that's true. They're, they're Later, very, yeah. yeah. They're, but I'm they're talking about like in the 18th dynasty where you have someone being like, I think you have oh, that's a Levantine. You still have those names and there Copy are them. still different languages. Um, how different, I don't know. So, um, Or do they... We'd have to invite somebody on to... Instill a difference to make them, to actually purposely, you know... I don't know. I don't to know. To make that divide more clear. And, and I don't know what philologists might use to make that African yeah, connection. Yeah, I don't know how to yeah. track all that stuff back. Yeah. Like a proto... <laughs> Proto-Meroitic or Proto-Nubian, like Proto-Indo-European or something. Mm -hmm. What would be the ancestor, mother tongue of both Egypt and mm -hmm. Nubian? Presumably they're on the same branch of the tree. Yeah. So, yeah. it'd be interesting just to yeah. see different interaction. Where the Levant is, of, which that's also interesting in a different sense. Like the Semitic branch and like how there's like a hard It's line. not that hard because Egyptian is still Afro-Asiatic. Yeah. It's still got a Semitic element to it. And it is a combination of the two. So Egypt is there on the crossroads that has both of these things. And then you have the Semitic, you know, branches of the language. And then to the south, you've got the African. Um, so it's, um, 
it's it, it's uh it's interesting that the Egyptians well, are like there at the place where they both meet. Modern day Ethiopia, there's like so many languages yeah. in Ethiopia, and some of them are Semitic, some of them are African, and they're all in this big melting pot together. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, Oh, but can I say something else for this question? Because mm -hmm. this question is about occupation, right? Yes. So I will also answer that if you want to learn how people deal with occupation, read the Book of Kings, the mm -hmm. Books of Kings in, in the Hebrew Bible, because there you will get an understanding of how people deal with occupations by the Egyptians on the one hand and by Assyrians and Persians on the other hand. Mm -hmm. And sometimes those occupations are... are keenly painful and sometimes they're liberating i would say the assyrians versus the persians in that perspective but how does a culture form under constant occupation that is the hebrew bible mm -hmm. in mm -hmm. short mm -hmm. and it, the origins of the hebrew bible are the exodus story in many ways which is leaving an enslavement from being live captives in egypt from a, a hegemonic uh, theft of its people and how you correct that and how you deal from that, you, you heal from that trauma and, and find a new path forward. Mm -hmm. So, you know, he, Hebrew Bible is a, <laughs> maybe not a result of direct hegemonic exploitation from Egypt, rather a, a result of direct exploitation from further east of, of um, where they are in West Asia. Mm -hmm. But Egypt is still there. Egypt yeah. is still a part of this discussion. Yeah, so there's so many ways to track this. And, mm -hmm. and just, I think, remember this, it's not unilateral in any way. Even if you have a colonial setting where the Egyptians are the ones in power, there's still bi-directional flow of, you know, influence. Yeah. Um, so the, the Egyptians are being influenced by the Le Levantine people and yeah. the, and the Su Sudanese, Nubian people, um, even though they're in the position of power. Yeah, there's never going to be any hard and fast boundaries. You're yeah. always going to have flow yeah. between them, always. So I think, as you can imagine, a colonized people feels is probably how they felt. Yeah. Uh, but also, if you can use the Egyptians, maybe the Egyptians are better overlords than the Assyrians. So you're like, hey, if I'm going to have an overlord who bugs me less, who takes less taxes, who burns my farm less, you know, worst, it, best devil or whatever... I mean, it depends on why they're occupying you. Yeah, if they're just coming here for money. If they're coming for a quick smash and grab, and as so often we read in Egyptian texts about going into Kadesh or, or Megiddo, you go in and you you take the chariots of the coalition forces that you've met. You, you, yeah, you, you take, take some live captives. horses. Exactly, and you bring all that stuff back, then you're done. It means that the people who are living there as peasants, yes, some fields may have burned and some orchards may have been cut down, but it's not as brutal. But mm -hmm. if you're occupying Nubia with the intent of extracting minerals over the long term, mm -hmm. then what you will do to a population is much crueler and deeply entrenched because you have to change a system such that you can continue your extraction for, for decades. And... The yes. mineral is not just gold, but also electrum, um, a, com a, co a combination of metals. So the extraction is not just gold, but also other minerals mm -hmm. like granites yeah, and, stones other, and other, yeah, ores other and things. 
semi-precious stones and so you're gonna use the people so yeah. you'll use the people as miners you use the people to, to take their basalt pounders and just mm -hmm. sit there for days upon end you can only ship so many prisoners down south to do this for you you're going to do this to the local population which is why i think it's it's so horrendous so this is what i think that egypt didn't have an empire in the levant they were using it as a buffer because like they didn't want then Assyria to be right up up to them. So they used this Levantine place as like this buffer zone yeah. to protect them from the other powers that be. Yeah. But Nubia, I would argue, they were trying to absorb in a colonial, or have it as a colony, quote unquote. It just also is directly south of them because of these very reason. They have long-term plans to be in the region to exploit it. Yeah. I mean, it's it's a colony is different from an empire. Colonization is different. For, th th those are different. Yeah, when you think of the British Empire, you think of its colonies in India and yeah. Egypt and the new, you know, uh, what is now the United States. And but there's there's little evidence that that you're empowering an elite population to work on your behalf to delegate to, and there's little evidence of the kind of cultural. Um, Who's that Nubian diversity? That you get has a, a tomb in, in Thebes, but also has a tomb in Nubia, and he um, depicts himself super Egyptian in the Egyptian tomb, and then super Nubian in his Nubian tomb. This is Stuart Smith's um, is that, work, or is yeah. it my Harepri? It's not my Harepri. No, it's Stuart Smith. This I don't know. Yeah, this but like know. he was empowered and got the it's tomb possible. in Thebes. It's possible. Um, and then you, I don't see the same kinds of an imperial structure generally is supportive of different religions, different ethnicities, different ways of being because they need all of them. So there is plurality in an imperial world. And there's also economic structures that are based on imperial growth. And I don't see either of those things. I see a very Egyptian hegemonic system planting itself as a colony, fine, yeah. into an occupation, fine, into this Nubian space, but I don't see it as the you know Romans or the the Persians that go out and you know set up outposts and set up satraps who could be local people and empower local elites to extract taxes to grow themselves mm. and then to go out further into other lands because empires are based on growth and and we are we are the products of that in late stage mm -hmm. capitalist America right even though whether or not we actually have an empire is arguable as well. Yeah. I think what we have is a hegemony too. I guess it's how, it's definitely colonization. And I think it's how you define if colonized places are a part of an empire, mm -hmm. like Britain and yeah. French yeah. and their total like abuse of Africa and but a colony, Asia. A colony is a place you set up so you can send your people to their place. Mm -hmm. So Jamestown is a colony. So a colony right? could become part of your empire if you can yes, it in a sense. Absolutely. And you get deep enough involved. Yeah, absolutely. So well, Absolutely. we can continue to argue about yeah, we could. empire Well, this forever. is a super hot topic, and yeah. everyone should realize this, that in the literature, whenever Egyptologists talk about Egyptian invasions of the Levant and Nubia, the word empire is used with regularity. Mm -hmm. The Egyptian empire grew under Ramses II to its greatest extent, and then it shrank, or whatever it is in mm -hmm. the literature. That word is just thrown about with very little regard for what an empire actually is and how it functions. Yeah. 
And that's the part where I'm like, wait a minute, mm -hmm. is this actually an empire or is it uh, a hegemonic occupation that serves them, but doesn't really fit the other parameters? And, yeah. and that's where I, And I'm sure there's know. different definitions by different scholars of what an empire is anyway. Mm -hmm. so there probably, are. You could probably find one to fit. But yeah. Potentially. Yeah. Potentially. Um, and, and really my definition of empire is much, oh, because um, Thank you. And really my definition of empire is, is this is very much an Iron Age mm -hmm. thing. Uh, but there are Bronze Age empires that are still based on growth. And, you know, if Sargon of Akkad is the one mm -hmm. who's creating the first empire, they do keep getting bigger. Yeah, and sure. when somebody takes it over, they take over the whole and then it gets bigger yeah. again. It keeps going like this. Yes. It keeps yeah. getting larger. And so watch one of those videos. Mm -hmm. This is my, so this will be my last point on this. Watch one of those videos where they show you the growth of empires. And you see them the as... Roman Empire, Roman Empire, fine. British Empire, fine. Or before that, you could you could look at um, the Persian Empire. But they, they get bigger and then they shrink. And then they get bigger than they were before. And then they shrink. And then they get bigger than yeah. they were before. And it's so cool to watch those maps change. Mm -hmm. If you did that for Egypt... You, you would see them go to the Levant, go to Nubia, and then come back. And then go to the Levant, and go to Nubia, and then come back. And then go to the Levant and Nubia, and then come back. Yep. Until they get their asses kicked by actual imperialists who take them into their mm -hmm. empire. And then Egypt is never the same. same and yeah. still hasn't been the same. Mm -hmm. Because it's not imperial. It is easily imperialized. Yeah. No. Okay. Okay, maybe you convinced <laughs> me. But I do think there's something different and how they yeah. work in Nubia versus they work in I Levant. I agree. It's whatever terms we want to put to it, but well, it's, it's definitely a different strategy. More work needs to be sure. done on this. It's but so interesting. It's interesting. So interesting. Yeah, especially Nubian stuff. Yeah. yeah. I think. But I think in combination, more comparative, mm -hmm. yeah. big picture, long durée work yeah. needs to be done. And and I think that could um, be some a really interesting set of dissertations. Mm -hmm. It's not one dissertation. Yeah, there's a lot you could of just work. look at the art in mm -hmm. these two, like the outgrowth yeah. or language and yeah. yeah, so many different tactics you could take with it. Yeah, three a million times. Well, this has been fun. Yay. All good questions. Thank you and to I, our patrons. <laughs> I should probably, you know, just know that I don't know what these questions are beforehand. Yeah. And yeah, we don't prep. We don't look anything up. No, this we don't. Just cold. We just, we do this cold. Um, and so if you have anything to add, please. Yep get in there. Um, th these are all uh, interesting topics with a lot more written on them than what mm -hmm. we're presenting here. And, you know, that's that's as it should yeah. be. Perfect. Okay. Well, thank you all for listening. Thank you so much we for joining us. See you next time. This is After Lives of Ancient Egypt. Yay. Okay. Bye. Bye. Thank you to our listeners for your support and for subscribing wherever you listen. If you enjoyed the show, please share it with others and leave us a five-star review. Send us your questions related to the show and topic suggestions for future episodes to karakuni at gmail.com. You can find the show notes in the podcast section of my website, karakuniegyptologist.com. For that, thank you, Amber Myers-Wells. There you'll also find info on my books and upcoming lectures. While you're there, don't forget to sign up for my newsletter to keep up on the latest news and content from me. Check out the conversations that happen after the podcast mic is turned off by subscribing to our Substack After Lives After Party. You can find me on Facebook at Karakuni Egyptologist and on Twitter and Instagram at Karakuni. See you next time on After Lives with Karakuni.